the uh, entrance exam for um, All Souls College in Oxford is meant to be horrendously difficult. Okay, what they do is, uh, they, all, all the colleges have these different entrance exams and things like that. But this one for All Souls, what they do is they basically give you one word. You've got three hours to write about that one word. Okay, so you walk in and you turn over the paper and they kind of publish it afterwards. They say these are the words that people have had to write about. So they've had things like um, mercy was one of them. Okay, so you had three hours to write about mercy. Okay, error. Three hours on it. There was one apparently, water. And I was thinking, yeah, that one I probably could have managed. Three hours on water? Yeah, I'd probably do that one. Okay. And a number of different colleges now, and, um, and educational establishments, they kind of picked up on this idea and said, okay, look, you know, we'll give you one word to write about. Okay, three hours. So the story goes of a student, walks into one of these exams, sits down, and turns over the paper. And there's one word there. Why? So he sits there and he can hear all of his friends picking up their pens and start to write their essays about why and everything like that. And he's like, ah. And finally, he writes down one word, hands his paper in and walks out the room. And he receives top marks for his answer. Because in answer to the question, why, he wrote, because. You just think, you know, if I just do that. But that question, why, is something we're so used to. I mean, when you're growing up as a kid, or why, you know, you just get that from your parents the whole time. Why? Why are you going out dressed like that? Okay? Why? Okay? Um, why, why did you do it? Yeah? From your parents. And then as you grow up, maybe become a parent yourself, you get the opposite thing. You know, why? Why are you going out dressed like that? <laughs> yes? Why? Why did you do that? Okay, it comes back the opposite direction. We're so used to that question, why? And the reason I raise that is because when the church that received this letter, when Paul writes this and when it's read out, when Paul gets to this bit in this letter, there will have been people in that congregation who would have said, why? Why, Paul, are you saying these things? And the bit that we've looked at, the bit here at the end of this chapter, verses 14 to 16, this is Paul doing his bit at the end where he just says, okay, I'll tell you why. This is where Paul says, because. And what I want to look at this morning is what Paul's answer is to why the church should live in a certain way. Why they should be living their lives for him. For Jesus Christ, our Lord. Why should they live their lives for Jesus? Okay, a bit of background. Who's Paul writing to? Well, you, well, you look at it, you go, well, he's writing to Timothy. But actually, Timothy is in Ephesus. He's been sent there. And if you flick back to chapter 1, um, you'll see that exactly what's been going on. Okay? Uh, basically, Paul has a special place in his heart for Ephesus. When he's traveling around, we read in the book of Acts, he gets to Ephesus. Now, there may have been a few Christians there already, but to be honest, Paul kind of really gets the church going in Ephesus. Okay? And he spends some time there, and he gets this church going, and then he leaves and moves on and goes to other places to teach and set up churches there as well. But the church in Ephesus has some huge problems, and Paul hears about them. Massive problem in Ephesus going on. So he says, okay, I'm going to send someone to you. In fact, I'm going to send my right-hand man. 
I'm going to send Timothy. And Timothy is sent to Ephesus to sort out the problems in the church there. And you can read that back there. Chapter 1, verse 3. As I urge you, when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus, so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer. Okay? The church in Ephesus is having huge problems. And as you read through this letter, it's quite clear that they're massive. There's certainly people there that are doing false teaching. And by the sounds of things, reading between the lines, what they're doing is saying, uh, there's kind of two levels of Christianity. There's your kind of basic Christian. And then there's your kind of special Christians. They're the ones that kind of know all the special stuff. Okay? And they're kind of putting this message out. Are you one of the normal ones or one of the special crowd? But there's other big problems there in this church. As you look through, you can see the kind of things. Chapter 2, verse 8. Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. What Paul is saying is that when this church comes to pray, there are people that believe that their fists are the way of doing prayer. Really? This is a church where he says, don't lift up your hands in anger and disputing. There's people getting into fights in the church, arguing amongst each other, and actually seemingly coming to blows. When you talk about lifting up your hands there, seriously, in the church in Ephesus, when they say we'd like to lay our hands on you, it means something completely different. And the women, carries on, verse 9, I also want the women to dress modestly, decency, proprietary. Adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles, gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds. Apparently what was happening is the women there, they used to have this thing about their hair. They used to spend ages kind of doing their hair up in these amazing hairstyles. Obviously it doesn't happen these days anymore. But back then the thing was is they would have these huge elaborate hairstyles and then walk into church and go, oh dear, yeah, just this old thing. Oh, just threw it together this morning. And church was becoming a fashion show. It was about what you wore, how you looked, was becoming far more important. And Paul said, no, it's not about that. Dress modestly, decency, proprietary. It's not a fashion show. And then he goes on about the eldership. Now imagine you were applying for a job. And when the job advert came through, it said, we're looking for an office manager. We would like this manager not to beat up the staff and assault them at every occasion. If you saw a job advert like that, you'd be thinking, what kind of company is this? Because the implication is, is they currently do have an office manager who beats up the staff and assaults them on every occasion. When Paul writes about the eldership and leaders of this church in chapter 3, he says in verse 2, now the overseer, that's the elder, is to be above reproach, Faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, um, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent. The fact that Paul actually has to spell that out suggests that the leadership are actually at times given to being violent. There are huge problems going on with this church in Ephesus. And Paul writes and he says, look, sort yourselves out. You should not be living that way. And the trouble is, is when Paul writes this, 
as this letter is read out, which undoubtedly Timothy would have said, look, let me tell you what Paul has written. As Timothy says, let me tell you what Paul has written, there would have been people in that congregation saying, why? Why should I live like that, Paul? There will be people there that do get into arguments and fisticuffs at the front of the church. And they will be saying, why? They say, well, it's very important. It's really important we get the theology right. He had it wrong. I had to punch his lights out because he had it wrong. There'll be women who'll be going, well, I think I add something to the church. My hairstyle of the talk of the town. Everybody comes along and some people come to church just to see how my hair looks today. It's important. There'll be people in the eldership saying, you don't know what the congregation's like. Sometimes I have to get violent with them, you know, when you go round on one of them door-to-door meetings. People saying, look, why should we live that way? And Paul turns around and he says, okay, let me tell you why. Because. Look what he says. Verse 14. Although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you'll know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. Number one. Get the urgency of what Paul is writing. I hope to come to you soon, says Paul. I'd like to do this myself. I would like to stand in front of you in that church in Ephesus and say, how are you acting? I would like to do this myself, but I can't. So I'm writing you these instructions. It is urgent that you know about these things. that you know about what? You will know how people ought to conduct themselves. See, the trouble is that word ought. When you read that sentence, ought kind of means if you get round to it. I say to my son, Samuel, you ought to tidy your room. Now, as far as my son Samuel is concerned, that means if you've got nothing else to do, then... If you can get round to it, it'd be quite nice. And we always think of the word ought as being in that sense. Paul doesn't mean it in that way. In fact, the word that he uses is very similar to the one that he uses back at the beginning of chapter 3 when he talks about the elder. And he says, now the overseer, the elder, is to be. And that's the same phrase as he uses down here. You will know how people are to be. You will know how people are to conduct themselves. How? In God's household. Now that's a lovely phrase. Because it says, if you are a believer, if you are a follower, you are part of God's household. Now we don't get the idea of household so much these days. It's not something that happens in our society so much. But back then, a household was not just the family, it was everybody that came under that concern. So, you know, a a guy may have servants and slaves and things like that. That was his household, and he was responsible for all of them. And Paul effectively turns around and says, in our churches, we are part of God's household. He is in charge. He is the head of our house. That is how we should live. You know, in every household, there's household rules. Come across that? You know when you go around to somebody's house, 
Maybe you've been there for the first time, and you spend that first five minutes trying to suss out the household rules. So, for instance, we have the youth group coming around to my place, okay? You always know when the youth group are there because you open the door and there's a pile of shoes on the left-hand side, okay? Because we're a no-shoe house. Household rules, okay? You know when you go around to people's houses, is it a shoe house or a no-shoe house? What are the household rules? Okay? We have a household rule about swinging the Wii controller. Okay? Do not swing the Wii controller violently above your head. That light doesn't like being hit like that. Okay? It's the household rules. Paul says, you are part of God's household. Obey his rules. You know, these people here wouldn't have had a church building like this probably to meet in. They would have met in someone's house. And there'd have been an announcement in the, weeks, uh, the week before, and they'd have said, right, next week we're all meeting in Suetonius's house, or whoever it was, and he'd have said, right, the rules of my house are no sandals. Please take them off at the door. I've just had the mosaics relayed. Paul says, forget about all of that. You're not meeting in Suetonius's household. Your allegiance is this. Your allegiance is that you are God's household. And that's your primary allegiance. That's how you live your life. You live your life for him. Because you are God's household. And then he says, if it's wonderful to be described as God's household, he says something even more wonderful. Which is the church of the living God. Now, we read that, we think, what a lovely phrase, the church of the living God. Do you know how much that meant to the Ephesians? That would have really resonated with them. Do you know what Ephesus was like? Ephesus was a very religious place. Okay, they had, they had an amazing temple there. In fact, the temple at Ephesus was known throughout the world. It was one of the seven wonders of the world. It was the temple of Artemis at Ephesus. And it was fantastic. People would come from all over the world to see this temple. Okay? It was incredible to look at. And people would go in and they'd worship in this temple and there was probably a great big statue there. But, but Paul says there was something else as well that people would go and worship. Something that a rock that fell from the sky. Possibly a meteorite, something like that. And people would go and bow down in front of this rock and worship the rock. How was temple today? Wonderful. Went and prayed in front of the rock. Did it do much? No, it's a rock. Paul says, let me draw you a contrast between you and the rest of the world out there. They worship a dead rock. Your neighbours, the people around you, worship a dead rock. But you, you worship the living God. And you are part of God's household. How do you live? See, that's the thing. He turns around and says, we have a living God who is there in heaven and we have a relationship now with him. And he says, okay, if there are rules, household rules, about how you should live, there is a purpose behind the church, the church of the living God, What's the church there to do?
You will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Again, Paul talks about something the Ephesians would understand. You know, in that temple in Ephesus, they had the most incredible pillars. The pillars were 20 metres, 60 feet high pillars. Apparently, they were absolutely amazing. When that temple finally was pulled down, the pillars were taken away and used in other buildings because they were so incredible to look at. These beautiful, massive, great big pillars. They had stone bases that were 10 foot high. Absolutely amazing. See, the role of a pillar is to do something. A pillar is to hold something up. Okay, Paul says, the church, you have a role. You are to be the pillar and the foundation of the truth. Now, when Paul talks about the truth, he's talking about the gospel. Okay? He's talking about the fact that Jesus died and rose again so that we may know God. He says, okay, you as a church, you have a role to play. You are to be the pillar and the foundation of the gospel. The pillar holds something up so it's seen. As a church, Ephesus, as a church, you are to hold up the gospel so that it is shown. You are to be the foundation. The foundation stops something from moving. It is the block on which it stands. It's the support structure underneath. And he says, Ephesus, as a church, as the church of the living God, you have a role to play and you are to support the gospel and ensure that it is held up and preached and teached. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that God cannot work without the church. It's quite clear when you read through the book of Acts that God works in many, many times when he works without the church. But he says, if there is a church, you have a role to play. And the role is this. You are to hold up the gospel and you are to support it. Visibly, like the pillar. Invisibly, like the foundation. Is that just the church in Ephesus? You see, Paul wrote this to Timothy. But God said, I'm going to make sure that ends up in the Bible. Because I want all churches to know this. Because in every church, you are God's household. You are the church of the living God. And you have a role to play. Every church is to be the pillar and foundation of the gospel. We are meant to hold up God's truth so that it is seen. We are meant to support God's truth so that it stays firm and true and strong. And who's that duty placed upon? The leaders, the elders, the deacons that we have, the church committees. The duty is placed upon the church. The church of the living God. Hold up God's truth. How do we do that? I told you that I came to this church many years ago. I was in Limfield, at the All Saints there. I was here in the URC, and I used to go around to my friends' churches around here. I'm now up in Caterham. Why do we go to these churches? Because these churches hold up that truth and preach it and teach it. I have a debt 
to so many people in Linfield because they taught me when I was growing up and they showed me the gospel and they taught it to me. They were pillars and foundations. And now we are called to do the same. And that's really tough. You see, there's a tendency for us to step back and go, do you know what, let's, let's, just, let, let's just let the leadership, let's let other people do that. But God turns around and says, no, the household rules are this. If you are part of this church, if you are part of the church of the living God, then you are called to ensure the gospel is preached correctly, and that is all of us, each and every one. That means going up to people who are teaching, going up to people who are preaching, going up to people that are taking Bible studies, and ensuring that they are able to preach and teach the gospel. And ensuring that it comes out well. I went to a conference the other week. I was speaking at a conference. And I went up the front and I gave my talk, terrified as always. And at the end of the conference, they pass around a questionnaire that says, how were the talks? Were they clear? Were they understandable? And they score the presentations from all of the people sitting in that room to say, did you understand what this conference was about? Was it useful to you? Because we want to make sure that we're doing it right. We want to make sure that people are benefiting from this. Do we do that in our churches? How seriously do we take God's word? And it means going up to the person who is preaching and teaching and taking Bible studies and saying, that bit really worked. But it didn't quite follow you on that bit. And I'm well aware of the irony that here I am standing in front of you as a preacher this morning, encouraging you to actually be critical about people who are standing up and teaching. But it's not just people like myself, it's anybody taking a Bible study or training or teaching or doing anything like that. Because the point behind it is this, how seriously do we take the gospel? Because to be honest, if we don't care, what does that say about us as a church? Now there's ways and means of doing this. Okay? And I'm certainly not suggesting that you walk up to every preacher straight after he's spoken and said, well that was rubbish. I know that when a preacher or teacher or anybody who takes a Bible study, you know what it's like, you spend a lot of time preparing it and it's kind of quite personal. But if you are a teacher or a preacher, or you're taking Bible studies or doing anything like that, do you know what, it's really important that we communicate the gospel well and yes, of course God can take whatever we say and use it. But it's vitally important that God's message comes over well. When I was doing youth work at Crowborough, I took over the leadership there of a group that was 100 strong teenagers. And I sat down with them and I said, what should I do as a leader? And I thought they'd come back with, we want social events, we want things like this. And they said, give us good speakers. They said, we spend weeks plucking up courage to ask somebody to come along to this group. And then they come along and somebody stands at the front and mumbles away like that. And they can't really hear what's going on. They don't really have any passion about what they're doing. They said, give us good speakers. Give us speakers who can communicate God's word.
if we are the church of the living God, we need to take God's word seriously. And part of that means, as a church, we become the pillar and foundation of the truth. And we hold it up. And we make sure that it stands firm and strong and true. And you may say, look, I don't know what to say. How, how, how do I talk to someone that maybe has had training and things like that? How do I talk to him about the gospel? And so Paul ends very quickly and he just says, look, he says, it's pretty simple. Do you want to know what the gospel is? Verse 16. Talking about Jesus. He appeared in the flesh. Was vindicated by the Spirit. Seen by angels. Preached among the nations. Believed on in the world. And taken up into glory. That is the gospel message. And if that is not coming over clear. Then you need to be telling people. There's no great mysteries about this. There's no one level of Christian and another. We are God's household. We are the church of the living God. We have a duty to do. To hold up the gospel. And ensure that it stands firm. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ.